preach. I, I love the skill level of our, of our musicians and their humility as they lead us to Christ. Beautiful. <clears throat> if, you, if you know Keith Green's music and if you've ever seen pictures of him, he had a big old afro, the first preach. I love the skill level of our of our musicians and their humility. Perhaps next time you go to the barber, start working on the fro, Daniel. <laughs> Pray with me, please. And to think, Father, that that is just a hint, just a pointer, just a glimpse of how unreasonable your love is, how how powerful, how reforming, how uh, amazing it is. And so I pray today as your word is declared yet again that it would get through, through to us, through to hard hearts and distracted minds and uh, wayward, wayward lives. Come, come, Lord, and show your beauty through your word proclaimed now by the Spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I remember when I was getting my middle school physical for basketball, old Doc Rigger put his stethoscope on and he listened longer than normal to the beating of my heart. And when he was done, I realized something had caught his attention. As he explained to my mom what it was, he, he called it a murmur. Um, and that is that, that there was a defect in the way that my heart beat. And he was concerned about it enough that it could be something serious that he issued a decree that I should be held out of athletics for a year to verify that it was, there was nothing serious that, that could actually put my life in danger. And um, the same scenario played out a little differently not too many years ago, just a handful of years ago. My had some erratic heartbeat, went to my doc here in town and he sent me a, to a cardiologist immediately who promptly put me on a treadmill and tried to kill me right there <laughs> in his office. Um, but today, um, Dr. Jesus has a similar concern. There, there is an erratic heartbeat in the church. And he, has, he has put on his stethoscope and he has heard something troubling. There is a serious defect in our hearts um, that could be disabling to us. But rather than a treadmill, as is often the case, Jesus' remedies come to us wrapped in a story. And so serious is his diagnosis today that he's not going to tell just one story or even two stories, but he's going to do an entire trilogy of stories back to back to back that all dispense the exact same remedy. This is what we find Jesus doing in Luke chapter 15. If you'll open your Bibles there, you'll find that he tells a trilogy of stories to drive his message, his remedy deep down into the hearts of his hearers deep down into our hearts. Um, now, today I have a unique opportunity. I'm going to return to a passage I taught to you just last year. It should have the ring of familiarity to it. Um, 
and I hope it, a review of this passage encourages you as it has me, but honestly, this is a story that we could tell every year. And it's a story that I can't imagine learning how to be devoted to loving neighbor without including in our teaching. So if you'll open your Bibles again to Luke 15. This is how the story starts. Starting in verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I like Professor Dale Bruner's rendering of this. He, he paraphrases it this way. He says, when all the sleazy and the immoral elements were starting to approach Jesus to listen to him, the seriously religious and their Bible teachers were starting to grumble, saying, this guy welcomes the most immoral types, and he has meals with them. He uses the phrase, instead of Pharisees, he calls them the seriously religious because he knows that whenever we hear somebody talk about the Pharisees, that's always somebody else. But we could be seriously religious, couldn't we? Well, their accusation that this group brings kind of grumbles at Jesus about is an important one to grasp. He receives sinners and eats with them. He actively welcomes sinners, lots of them. He seeks them out. We would say he chooses to have lunch with them. He has coffee with them, even dessert. It's a very social act of acceptance that Jesus is doing often with many. And in their minds, it's guilt by association of a sorts. Um, the rabbis taught um, back in that day, that this was a sinful idea, a bad idea to associate with such people, that it was too great a risk of contamination. Even to attempt to rescue them was dangerous. And so later on, rabbis would say, let not a man associate with the wicked, even to bring him near to the law. Just too risky. Well, Jesus thinks that their idea is a bad idea even an ungodly idea. So he launches into this trilogy of stories, one after another after another. And the third is where we'll spend most of our time. But again, most trilogies make sense if you read them in order. So we're going to start with the first one, spend a little bit of time on that, and the second one before, before we make good sense, hopefully, out of the third. So the first one starts in verse 3 of Luke 15. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So Jesus here is inviting his critics to see themselves in this story by a lost sheep. Wouldn't they go searching for a sheep that was lost? And the implied answer is yes. Yes, I would. Even if it seems a little over the top, right? I mean, leaving the 99 sheep to go after just one, that must be a pretty special sheep, right? And is that really something you throw a party over when you find it? A 1% gain in sheepness? Right? It's a pretty simple story. Um, 
something of value is lost, an all-out search ensues, and then there's a party when it's found. Now, after Jesus gets them on board with his critics on board with this story, then he makes his point in the next verse, verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So, we would say it's a little over the top to put 99 sheep at risk for the one that's lost. And it seems a little extreme to throw a party about it. Jesus says, there'll be more joy than that in heaven when one sinner repents. You heard it right. The party will be way over the top for just one wayward one who is found. Think about that. Every time someone comes to faith in Christ, when you came to faith in Christ, there was a party in heaven thrown because of you. Okay, on to volume two in Jesus' trilogy of stories. Verse 8, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. Okay, pretty much same plot line, same story, different characters, right? A woman and a coin this time. And again, it's a little over the top. She practically takes the, the house apart looking for this one coin. But you know what this is like. You misplace your car keys, right? And you, even if you're not going anywhere tomorrow, you go crazy trying to find them. It's that kind of thing. And then, then she throws a party when she finds it. Now, I think you have to appreciate what this party, what went into throwing this party. It's, it's, she couldn't just text her friends, found it, and they replied back with assorted emojis, right? That's, it didn't, she had to go to their house, seek them out, tell the story, invite them to rejoice. Come, let's have a celebration. And again, after Jesus gets them on board with his, with his story, then he makes his point. Verse 10, just so I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, over the top joy in heaven when just one wayward person repents. That is, they turn from their sin and turn back to God. You get the sense that this is heaven's great obsession. It is heaven's great joy when this happens. All right, that's volumes one and two. They set us up for volume three in the trilogy, and we know it as the story of the prodigal son, and it starts like this. He said, there was a man who had two sons, and I want to just draw your attention to the progression here. In the first story, one of 99 sheep is missing. In the second story, 
one of ten coins is missing, and now we're about to see one of two sons goes missing. Turns out, even though we call this story the story of the prodigal son, it's actually a different kind of story. Barbara Brown Taylor has written an outstanding article on this passage, and I'll, I'll let her help us several times today. But she, she puts it this way. She says, most of us grew up calling Jesus' story about a man and his two sons the parable of the prodigal son, but it is not. Jesus did not begin his tale by saying, there once was a man who had a father and an elder brother. There was a man who had two sons, Jesus says, letting us know whom the story is really about, a father who loved his two children to distraction and wanted them to love each other too. So we should probably come up with a better title for our story. <laughs> Verse 11, he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. This is a bit of a shocking development in the story. Not so much what the son did. If you've ever been around teenage sons, this is not necessarily shocking. It's kind of sad, but it's not necessarily shocking. Likely amidst his teenage rebellion, this young man demands his inheritance, even while his father is still alive. This is sad, in part because of what we will find out he wants it for but mostly because of how badly he wants it. He essentially tells his dad, I want your money more than I want you. And these are sorrowful words for any dad to hear. But what's really shocking here is what this father does. It's the first of three shocking things that the father does in this story. The father relents. He gives the inheritance to his son. Most dads would have said something like this. They would have said, no, son, I think that's a bad idea. I've seen the way you spend the money you already have and on video games and that outrageous stereo for your car. I don't think you'd use the money wisely yet. We'll just wait. Okay. But, but not this dad. Okay. This dad gives it to him. He gives all of it to him. And I think Jesus really means all of it. The younger son, according to Jewish uh, tradition and, and legislation, he would have gotten up to a third of his father's estate. Um, land, livestock, currency, all of it. And the father gave him all of it. Now, those of us who are dads would probably say, this is being generous to a fault. This is not good for your son. But it doesn't matter what we think. It's Jesus' story. He can do whatever he wants with it. And Jesus has said he gets it all. And just as we would have warned him, though, bad things happen to the son. Okay, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger man, or the younger son, gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So the younger son acted quickly. As soon as he could liquidate those assets, he gathered up all he had. It says, all of it, and went to a far country. He took it all. I don't think he was planning to come back. 
He went to a far country, as far away from home, as far away from his brother, and perhaps especially as far away from his father as he could get. And there he lives foolishly. He blows the entire inheritance. And, and the story portrays his father as a wealthy man. He blows it all, and then on top of that, a famine hits. And being broke and hungry at the same time is a really rough combination. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So to his credit, he has enough sense to find work. Likely he finds work from someone who is not an Israelite, who's a Gentile, since the man is raising pigs, and no self-respecting Israelite would ever be in that business. But that's where our young prodigal, our young rebellious Israelite finds himself. He's in the pig business. He's in a pig sty, in fact, feeding the pigs, longing to eat their food, and I have serious doubts that it was kosher. And no one would give it to him. No one would give him anything. And there in that pigsty, he began to hum that ancient Hebrew lament. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Okay? If you don't know what that's from, A, you're young, and B, you're blessed. So, um, so then, then he has kind of an epiphany, right? He came to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here for hunger? Even the day laborers on my dad's farm, even the minimum wagers who work there are eating better than me. So he hatches a plan. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So, his plan, driven by hunger at this point in time, but also motivated by what one writer said, the memory of a good father that precedes his choice to return. The hope of a good and merciful father give him hope to return home. So what do we make of his plan? It has some good points, right? He confesses his choices as sin against God and his father. He doesn't say, Dad, I made a financial miscalculation. He doesn't blame it on the fact that he had too much trans fat or high fructose corn syrup as a child. He just says, I've sinned, okay? He takes responsibility for it, and he does it from a very humble posture. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. But it has its weak points, too. He's, he's motivated here not by sorrow so much for what he's done as by hunger. And it seems like it could be a plan to kind of work it off himself. It's another, another scheme. He's going to pull himself up by his own bootstraps by getting a job working for his dad. But as it turns out, prodigals don't even have bootstraps. And for better or worse, it's the only plan he's got, so he goes with it. In verse 20, he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this was my son. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I suppose you could title this section, Plan Interrupted, right? Because he doesn't even get home before his plan veers off course in a really good, unexpected way. Right? While he was still, it says, a long way off. While he was still far, far away. You know, it's interesting, the same expression is used to describe the country that he went to. It's a far country. Still a long way off. I wonder if this may describe in Jesus' telling more than just his geography while he's still a long way from his father. While he's still a long way off, his father saw him. And I hardly think that was happenstance. I doubt he's just coming out of the hardware store and was looking both ways to make sure nothing was coming, and he happened to see his son. I imagine that he was always looking down the road every time he came in and out of any store, any time he was sitting on the porch, any time he was working the land. I think this father, the way Jesus describes him, was always scanning the horizon for the glimpse of a, of a familiar gait, maybe a little less swagger this time, but he was always looking, searching, we might say, like a shepherd looks for a lost sheep or, or like a woman looks for a lost coin. And then it happened. His father finally saw him, and full of compassion, he ran to him. And, and this is the second surprising thing about this father. He runs. You know, as we dads get older, we don't run much, right? Not, not we run a whole lot. Um, and... Some scholars say that Middle Eastern fathers don't run because it's not dignified for them to run. But Middle Eastern fathers who are like God, they run. They flat out run when they see their son. And the confession that the son had hatched there in that pigsty in the kingdom of far, far away is interrupted, it seems, by his father running and hugging and kissing and giving instructions to servants for a party that's going to be over the top. So why didn't he finish his confession? He only got part of it out, if you notice. He could have just been interrupted. Maybe he was overpowered by the undeserved love, the grace that came pouring over him from the father he intended to make his employer. See, to propose servanthood when sonship is offered is both folly and really bad form. And I think he was speechless at the greeting that he received, overpowered by the love that he received. See, not only is he almost run over and bear-hugged and kissed to death, he gets the best robe and a ring, which one writer described as a first-century equivalent of a visa card with his father's signature on it. And he gets shoes. Slaves didn't have shoes back in the day. See, he's welcomed back as family. He's welcomed back as a son once again. 
this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. So the story goes, they begin to celebrate. And I've picked this bone here before. What's with Bible translators, right? Have they never been to a party? Can they not even spare one exclamation point? And they begin to celebrate. Yeah. It should look like this. And they begin to celebrate, right? Um, so the closest, excuse me, the closest thing I can think of to this, this kind of party Uh, in the life of our church, is our baptism celebrations, right? Um, They are celebrations of homecomings for those who have been oftentimes far, far away from God. And um, they are amazing celebrations. You should come to those celebrations. They are better than the football games that you'll miss, okay? They are unbelievable parties. Now, if Jesus' story had just ended here, his point would have been made well enough. And I want to make sure you don't miss his point, his first big point. We don't want to miss it. We dare not miss it. How the Father loves his sons. And it's no secret, the Father's like God here. And then, interestingly, Jesus is a lot like that Father because Jesus is God. How the father loves his sons. Oh, the price he would pay to bless them and to rescue them. He would give all he had. He would search until he finds them like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep. He would turn the house upside down like a woman looking for a lost coin. How the father loves his sons. His sons, plural. He has two of them and he loves them both. And that's why Jesus' story doesn't just stop with the reconciliation of the first son. It continues, and now it's about the elder son. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. That's how you know it's a really good party, when you can hear the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And you would expect rejoicing. You'd expect him to run to that house like his dad. But instead, it says he was angry and refused to go. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. It says that he was angry, and he refused to go in. And that sounds just like the way our story started. That the Pharisees and the Bible teachers grumbled that he was associating with prodigals. But you have to admit the elder brother has a point, right? Um, Especially those of you who are older siblings. You get his complaint. 
Barbara Brown Taylor again helps us. She says, I am an eldest child myself. I know what it's like to break in parents, to step aside as they exercise their new and improved skills on younger siblings, and then to take the rap for the little criminals when they mess up. I remember, she says, one Saturday afternoon when I was supposed to be looking after my two sisters and my parents came home early. Within minutes, they had hauled me by my elbow to the upstairs bathroom to show me my little sister clutching a fat black crayon in her fist, putting the finishing touches on the claw-footed porcelain bathtub that had once been white. Did she get spanked? No. She was just a little baby who did not know any better. Did I get spanked? Yes. I was the older sister who should have kept her out of trouble. She says, older siblings frequently get the raw end of the deal, as the elder brother apparently does in the parable at hand. My guess is that he was not incensed by his younger brother's return or even by his father's forgiveness of him, but by the celebration. Let the penitent come home by all means, but let him come home to penance, not a party. Where's the moral instruction in that kind of welcome? What about facing consequences? What kind of world would this be if we all made a practice of rewarding sinners while the God-fearing folk are still out in the fields? And it's interesting how much the older brother is like his younger brother, even though he would deny any family resemblance at all at this point. See, the younger brother planned to come back and be his father's slave, and that is what the older brother seems to feel he is already. His relationship with his father is just one of obeying his commands. The older brother was always obedient, he says, but the father could have said, but he didn't. He wouldn't. So you have always obeyed me? Always? What about now? What about when I so desperately want you to join me in loving your brother who has come home? Are you obeying me now? Both brothers, it seems, have been far, far away. And that is what they both wanted. They both want to celebrate without their father. The younger brother more obviously, but the older brother thinks in the same terms of things his father never gave him so he could enjoy them with his friends with no mention of enjoying them with his father. And so they both, by their own choosing, are horribly estranged from family. We hear the estrangement when the older brother chooses his words carefully when he talks about his younger brother as this son of yours in verse 30. He cannot bring himself to say, my brother. He is far, far away indeed. Listen again to Barbara Brown Taylor as she talks about the father's response to this firstborn son. She says, here is where the loving father earns his title. He does not take a swing at his firstborn, as some of us might have been tempted to do, nor even remind him to honor his father. He knows that he has lost both of his sons. He has lost the younger one to a life of recklessness, but he has lost the older one to a more serious fate, to a life of angry self-righteousness that takes him so far away from his father that he might as well be feeding pigs in a far country. The father is pleading with his son, come in with me. Come in to the celebration. It's interesting. The father is offering 
to both sons, really, the very thing they both longed for, a great party. Which, by the way, was the very thing the Pharisees accused Jesus of, receiving sinners and partying with them. And this is the third surprising thing about this father in Jesus' story. He pleads with his older son. And I am not like this father. I, I would like to be like this father. I am not. Instead of pleading with him, pleading with my pouty son, I can pretty much hear myself saying something like this. So you don't want to come in. All right? Suit yourself. You made your bed. You sleep in it. You stay out here alone in the fields and keep on working. And I'm going to go back into the party. All right? You just stay out here. Na 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 na, right? <laughs> the, the, the juvenile father comes to life. Um, but that is not what the father says in Jesus' story. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. And this is one amazing father, right? And, of course, you remember who he represents, right? The word prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. But there is a second definition to prodigal. It's having or giving something on a lavish scale. And with that in mind, Barbara Brown Taylor says that the older brother wants his father to love him for all of what he has done. And his father does love him, but not for any of that. Any more than he loves the younger brother for what he has done. He does not love either of his sons according to what they deserve. He just loves them more because of who he is than because of who they are, and the elder brother cannot stand it. He cannot stand a love that transcends right and wrong, a love that throws homecoming parties for prodigal sinners and expects the hardworking righteous to rejoice. He cannot stand it, and so he stands outside, outside his father's house and outside his father's love, refusing his invitation to come inside. But his father turns out to be prodigal too at least as far as his love is concerned, he never seems to tire of giving it away. Son, he says, reclaiming the boy, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. His love for one child does not preclude his love for the other. The younger one's recklessness cannot deflect it any more than the elder one's righteousness. They are a family. They belong to one another, and a party for one is a party for all. We had to celebrate and rejoice, the loving father says to his elder son, because this brother of yours, not my son, but your brother, was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Maybe the better title for volume three of this trilogy of Jesus would be The Prodigal Father. But that's where the story ends. It, and it kind of just leaves us hanging. What happened? There's some important questions that are left unanswered. Did the son come in and join the party? How long did the father stay out and plead? Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't finish the story, I think, because he wants us to finish it. And now, if I was going to 
ghostwrite a fuller ending for Jesus, which is a very dangerous thing to do. But if I was going to finish this story, I know what I would write. How long did the father plead? Long enough. Did the son come into the party? Yes. Yes, he did. How would you write the story? How would you write the ending? Perhaps a more important question is, how have you written it? Can you find yourself in Jesus' story? That's why he told it, after all. For what Dale Bruner called the sleazy and immoral to find their place, and the seriously religious and the Bible teachers to find theirs. And that they all, that we all would find grace and love that brings us in from afar because the Father loves both of His sons. How is Dr. Jesus diagnosing your heart with these stories today? Do you resemble the younger brother? Are you a bit of a rebel, afar from God? Then today know that Jesus is inviting, inviting you in. He wants you to come home to the Father. Nothing would bring him more joy than for you to come home to the Father. He will give his life for that. It may be that you see yourself resembling the older brother. And that there are reasons and excuses and people that you do not want to see come in and you will not rejoice when they do. How does Jesus' trilogy pull on your heart? See, he wants us to share his joy. He wants us to love, to be devoted to loving our neighbor because he was. Because he does love our neighbors. Is he calling you to come in from a land far, far away? Is he calling you to invite some neighbors who are far, far away, who you've been unwilling to take the time for whatever reason to engage? All three of these stories are a defense of Jesus' conduct that he was receiving sinners and eating with them. And it's an invitation for us to join him in that conduct. So the worship team is going to come and lead us in a declaration of God's love for us and worship him for that. Um, and as we do, I want to encourage you to think through, what is God saying to you? Um, we often encourage people to come forward alone or with friends or family or grab one of our leaders down here for prayer. It's a helpful first step of obedience in response to the word. But you might want to come to find your way home. Maybe you're tired of your rebel ways and you're willing today to embrace the love of God that Christ has displayed so beautifully and so powerfully on the cross where he died for your sins. Maybe today you're ready to say yes to that. No matter how far you've sunk, no matter how far away you've run, know that the Father waits for you. The Father is running to you. You might want to come to repent today of not sharing Christ with someone, maybe a class of people, maybe somebody that you think is dangerous or could be trouble or you just don't think they belong here. 
for excluding them rather than engaging them and loving them and inviting them to Christ. And I think, too, lastly, it would be perfectly appropriate for you to come because you know somebody who's a younger brother and you want to see him come home. And your heart is burdened and you want to pray for them. So um, if you'll stand, let's stand in worship and then respond as God leads you.